Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, the Guardian podcast that just can't get enough of the hot, steaming and increasingly malodorous mess that is Brexit. And I apologise if you're listening to this over breakfast or indeed lunch or supper. I'm John Henley and this time we're mainly going to be trying to make some kind of sense of what, in terms of getting a Brexit agreement, is still always has been, and for all I know may forever remain, the one obstacle to rule them all, namely the Irish border backstop. The insurance policy aimed at guaranteeing that there'll be no return to a hard or policed border across the island of Ireland. Complicated, I know, but we have to go there. We'll also be wondering whether, assuming the two sides do reach an accommodation on the border question in time, which is basically within the next fortnight or so, and along with the yet-to-be-sorted political declaration on the future relationship between the UK and the EU, successfully write it into the withdrawal agreement, Theresa May will be able to sell it to Parliament. And remember, she's going to have to sell it to Parliament twice. First, in a motion to approve the withdrawal agreement, the so-called meaningful vote that MPs have been promised, but then also in the form of the primary legislation, the excitingly named Withdrawal Agreement Bill, by which it will become part of domestic UK law. All in all, a lot hinges on the next couple of weeks. We are, to use that delightfully English phrase that is apparently well enough known to have been adopted even by EU diplomats, fast approaching squeaky bum time. Why? Because if an emergency EU Brexit summit can be held in November, there will still be enough time for a meaningful vote before Christmas. If not, it's going to be January, which would leave very little time indeed to get that primary legislation passed. Finally, we'll briefly discuss, at least I'm presuming it'll be brief, the possible impact on Brexit of the announcement by Angela Mutti Merkel, Germany's leader for the past 13 years, that she'll be standing down as party leader of her Christian Democratic Union in December and not running again as Chancellor in the next federal elections. So, a lot to get through as ever, and I'm joined here in the studio, not for the first time to chew it all over, by Arnand Menon, who is Professor of European Politics at King's College London and director of the UK in a changing EU think tank and Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government. Welcome, welcome back In fact, Hello, John. to both of you. Um, we're also going to be speaking a bit later to Dan Boffey, the Guardian's Brussels bureau chief. But first, Arnand, can we start with you? Can we go right back 
to basics. Now, you produced a brilliant little video quite recently explaining the Irish border problem in 60 seconds flat. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do that (laughs) quite as briefly, but could you give us the benefit of your wisdom? Uh, Just maybe just a little bit more detail. Can you just explain why has this one issue become so critically important to the whole Brexit process? And so, you know, by extension without going into detail of what the backstop proposals are, but but what is the backstop actually meant to achieve? Well, I suppose the simple answer is this is where the red lines cross each other, which is what makes this so hard. So on the one hand, you have the red line shared by both sides not to have a border on the island of Ireland or any physical infrastructure around that border. On the other hand, you have Theresa May's own red lines, which are leaving the single market and the customs union. And finally, you have the red lines of much of her parliamentary party and the DUP, which is you can't have any sort of border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. You can't have all of those things. So essentially what's been going on at the moment is a way of trying to resolve the tensions between these various red lines. Early signs are that it's Theresa May's red lines that are becoming slightly pinker in the form of accepting what she will insist on calling a customs arrangement, but looks, smells, talks and sounds rather like a customs union Mm. to me. Mm. Okay, Um, Jill. Let's look at the the, the actual proposals. Um, I mean, the EU has proposed one kind of backstop that the UK says is unacceptable. And the UK has proposed an alternative that the EU says it can't accept. Could you just talk us through what the the two options that are on the table and why each side objects so fiercely to to the others? So the EU's um, starting point is that they want... Uh, what they call a Northern Ireland-specific backstop, so a way of solving this issue in the withdrawal agreement. Because remember, this is the sort of third default, the uh, withdrawal agreement, the joint report last December, which led to that, set out the sort of three processes you go for. First of all, the UK would solve this through its long-term future relationship. Secondly, there would be what they call specific solutions for Ireland. And third, there would be this sort of insurance policy that Anand was talking about. So the EU drafted their insurance policy. The insurance policy basically said, OK, we have no idea what the UK's future relationship will be. It sounds like it's going to be pretty distant, a sort of Canada-style agreement. That's what's compatible with, as Anand said, the UK's red lines. That's fine, as long as you effectively leave Northern Ireland behind. So their backstop has Northern Ireland staying in the EU's customs union and Northern Ireland insofar as it's necessary to avoid border checks and pre- preserve the integrity of the single market, an EU red line as well, uh, then Northern Ireland has to stay in that EU regulatory regime. So effectively, GB can do what it likes, but Northern Ireland stays behind if GB has an arrangement, which means that uh, otherwise that future relationship would entail checks. The UK said, well, actually, we're not going to do that. Uh, the Prime Minister was very Could vehement. Let me just interrupt you for yeah. one second. Is that not what the... UK signed up to at the end of last year. So there's this very interesting thing. The language that they signed up to in the joint report was a sort of clearly fudgy at the time. I think Arlene Foster, actually, when the Prime Minister rang her on that morning saying, actually, I'm going across to sign this, said, but this is, this is a fudge. And one of the problems is that basically both sides signed up to it because the EU think it's compatible with an all the line and specific thing. But remember, there was language put in at the last minute at the request of the UK about maintaining alignment with the rest of the, the UK may maintain full alignment, etc. And that's, I think, part of the problem because the UK 
was saying, no, no, don't worry, DUP. Do not worry. We won't leave you behind. You come with us. Um, The EU has said, well, actually, that's a sort of internal UK matter. If you want to align so you don't have to put in checks, trade going, that's fine by us. You You can do that. And actually, they sort of look when you talk to people from the EU, they say, well, you wouldn't expect us to be putting in an international treaty stuff about how you run your domestic affairs. You could imagine in a different universe, people might all be saying it was totally inappropriate for the EU to be telling GB how it needed to manage its relations with Northern Ireland. What the Prime Minister started off by proposing, so we've actually not had a comprehensive UK proposal on the backstop. We've had to sort of piece it together as a set of jigsaws. So the first bit out of the traps was not until June. We knew back in uh, late February that we hated the EU's version, but it took till June till we saw the first sort of uh, starting point of the UK position, which was, uh, as Anna says, this UK-wide temporary mm. customs arrangement. And that had a date in it. It had a date of December 2021. Uh, but it just said it would probably expire then because we expected that the magic future relationship would have mm. solved the issue by then. And there's a bit of a sort of argument about was this a great victory for David Davis or a great defeat for David Davis? Mm. Remember him, mm. Brexit <laughs> Secretary at the time. The next part of the uh, of the jigsaw comes together in the checkers plan for how do you run the rule book after mm. Brexit. And you could almost regard that big sort of regulatory centrepiece as being sort of reversed out from what did the future relationship have to say about alignment with EU regulations to remove the need for a backstop. Yeah. Um, because it was basically saying anything where normally you check at the border, so agri-food, yeah. sanitary, phytosanitary, actually we'd align with those. Things that didn't require back, you know, border yeah. checks yeah. that actually check through market surveillance behind the border we needn't align on. And that was basically the common rule books. That's the second part of the jigsaw. There's a third part of the jigsaw, which is just so mind-bendingly difficult. I'm not going to go there. It's about <laughs> VAT, because that's the third <laughs> thing you need to sort to have the, you know, the sort of no checks at the border and work out how you're going to mm. run those different mm. VAT regimes and things like that. But basically, but the long that's the piece together. The, the, the important part from the EU's point of view in, in the UK's proposal is that the UK wants this to be temporary. And yeah. the EU um, is essentially saying that that, that that can't happen. And, well, the EU saying temporary, well, we can't put more than temporary into a withdrawal agreement. That seems to have been one of the things they've been debating. Can the withdrawal agreement basically do yeah, set out one of the giant building blocks of the future relationship? So that's one problem, that it can't be temporary, because actually we want a permanent solution yeah. to this. We're not just interested in avoiding a hard border for a few years. The thing is, the UK was backing this horse in checkers of what it called a facilitated customs agreement. If the EU would agree to that and the UK could make it work, two very big ifs, then that essentially is your get-out-of-jail-free card on customs alignment because basically that's saying, actually, we needn't worry about a customs border because the UK will be subcontracted to run the EU customs border. So actually, we don't need those pesky border checks at that land border. And it's, you know, and actually, we don't need them in the RSC either. So, so that was the UK's get out of jail free card. We know that the thing the EU dislikes most about checkers is the facilitated customs agreement. I mean, they've made pretty clear that in terms of relative dead duckery, that's possibly the most stone cold. So that's a problem because that was one of the UK's horses it was backing to get it 
get Ireland solved yes. through yeah. the uh, yeah. through the uh, long term yeah. relationship, which is where the UK still wants to do all of this. Yeah. So impasse at the moment, um, but there has been a bit of movement, or at least there appears to be some movement, as Anand was was referring to. Over the last few days, it's been you know very widely reported now that you know the EU may be shifting a bit and could now be prepared to consider the idea of the whole UK customs arrangement, you know, and that would obviously get round the sort of no border down the middle of the Irish Sea uh, UK objection. Um, because Northern Ireland then obviously wouldn't be being treated differently from the rest of the UK. But Anand, you know, there are still big problems there, aren't there? The first, I suppose, being that, you know, how, how, how does Britain get out of this, or at least from the UK point of view, how does Britain exit itself from this backstop arrangement if and when it, it wants to? Because, you know, the, the Brexiteer's worst nightmare is going to be, you know, being stuck in sort of backstop purgatory, unable to strike any of because the whole point of, of being in a customs union is you can't strike the free trade deals around the rest of the world that the Brexiteers want to. Um, and of course, Ireland and the EU have repeatedly said that any backstop that the UK can pull out of unilaterally can't be a backstop by, by sort of by sort of by definition. So how on earth might that be got round? Is there is there some kind of dual control mechanism that might be possible or a review system or, you know, I mean, any, any will any degree of EU say over how and when Britain ends the backstop, is that ever going to be acceptable to the Brexiteers? Well, you can turn it on its head. I think any system that doesn't give the EU a say will be unacceptable to the EU and to the Republic of Ireland. And they've said so clearly over and over again. The UK can't get to decide when this ends for itself. So again, as with so much in this debate, the drafting is going to be absolutely fundamental. I mean, personally, I don't think that the bare bones of the backstop are going to look all that different to what they look like in December. There might be some nice language around it. The all UK customs union might be there to sugar the pill for us. But essentially, the backstop is going to remain there because the Irish and the EU have simply refused to make any real concessions on that. And the one concession at the moment the Brits seem to be wanting, either this joint mechanism whereby we decide together, but we're not bound by some kind of mm. EU veto or some kind of time limit, they don't seem to be getting a load of traction in Brussels, to be honest. I mean, do you think that Britain or the government essentially completely underestimated the, the, the degree of resistance that there would be, or the degree of support for Dublin that there would be from the the, the rest of the EU. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, think there are, that... I mean, remember, there are lots of things going on in the EU at the moment, and one of the things that's going on in the EU at the moment is the Commission didn't come out of the Eurozone crisis looking particularly good and particularly looking particularly good at its traditional job, which is supporting the interests of smaller states against larger states, because the whole Eurozone crisis, when viewed from the periphery, was a case of the large member states, particularly Germany, Mm. saying what they wanted and getting it. So there are good internal political reasons now why the European Commission wants to try and salvage that reputation of a defender of a small state. Mm. Uh, So there's all sorts of things tied up in this Mm. that mean that actually the stars were misaligned for Britain right. in this negotiation yes. in that sense. But, so, yeah, but I think uh, one of the other interesting things is at the time we signed up for the joint report, um, you know, so the sort of dominant text at the time of the UK position was the Prime Minister's Florence speech. Mm. The Prime Minister was still running 
with the idea she'd got two customs ideas in play one of which you know was this maximum facilitation they got an idea on how to make that work for Ireland with checks away from the borders and massive exemptions or her so-called new customs partnership which sort of you know morphed into the facilitated Mm. customs arrangement so they thought they had a possible way forward Mm. on customs and it was also at the time when you know the sort of Brexit supporting ministers at the very least, but you know, including the but the Prime Minister as well, was still running with the idea that actually the EU would agree to mutually recognise UK regulations. Mm-hmm. That was a very powerful mm-hmm. idea in Florence, that actually the UK started from a position of alignment, we were a sort of trustworthy country, and of course the UK would the EU would just accept mm-hmm. UK regulations and recognise mm-hmm. them on all fours mm-hmm. with the EU regulation. And if you actually sign up to the joint report believing those two things, you actually think you can solve this pretty yeah, easily it, it all, because the future it, relationship... It all looks a piece of cake. David Davis always phrase, thought yeah. you could do the future relationship mm. while we were still negotiating the withdrawal agreement. Mm. He never accepted that you'd have to wait. It was just a question of the formality of us leaving mm. to sign at you know, 11.01 on the 29th of March 2019. So that would all be you know, happily negotiated away, stuff like that. So if you believed all that, it wasn't quite as dramatic mm. as it, as might, it be. might be. So yeah. um, I must yeah. say that I, in retrospect, I wonder, I wonder to what extent the, the government, certainly the prime minister and her closest advisers ever believed their own propaganda in a sense. I mean, what we've had is a sort of slow drift from the hard line of Lancaster Gate to where we are now, which is in a rather different position. And I wonder... You know, when the histories come to be written, whether this wouldn't just be a rather clever a, 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 process of, a you know, process we're of going lowering to keep banging our head against the yes. wall until yeah. eventually it yeah. becomes apparent yeah. that... I mean, yeah. The UK always thought that the EU had made a tactical mistake and Ireland had made a tactical mistake by putting Ireland into phase one. They always said that's actually not a phase one withdrawal issue. That is a phase two future relationship issue. It's in the wrong place. I remember when we started off before things started hardening up in the in the autumn, the Irish part was not actually being done as a negotiation it was being done as this sort of you know separate strand of dialogue and things like that so some very interesting Mm. stuff that people have written about how did the sort of positions harden through the autumn to get to basically you know and the prime minister in december she'd already not got a sufficient progress decision in october which was what everybody was expecting to see to move on to the interesting Mm. part to move on to phase two so by december they were clearly absolutely desperate Mm. to agree something, something that would yeah. get them over that hurdle and get the verdict of sufficient progress. Of course, the irony is that having moved heaven and earth to get that sufficient progress verdict, it then took until July and checkers for the UK to actually go out there and say, well, this is what we this want what we for the long-term relationship. Exactly. Because I mean, it all went extent, into that sort of you know, yeah. continual dialogue in the cabinet and talking to ourselves. To an extent, the British were right, weren't they? I mean, the very fact that the Commission is considering an all-UK customs yeah. agreement in the Withdrawal yeah. Act yeah. Points to that linkage that David Davies underlined, you know, way back at the start of summer when the talks were starting. Okay, um, let's move on. Now, earlier I spoke to Dan Boffey, who's the Guardian's Brussels bureau chief. Uh, I asked him what he thought had prompted the EU's decision to consider this idea of an all UK backstop and what conditions the EU 27 would attach to it. Well, it's a matter of necessity, really. The Prime Minister has said that. She will not, and no other British Prime Minister could sign up to an agreement that would put a customs order in the Irish Sea. She said it in Commons, she said it 
to uh, the Junker, and she's claimed that it would be illegal, actually, in UK law. So the EU have a problem. Do they just ignore that and blithely allow a no-deal situation to occur, or do they try at least to engage with it? And they initially tried to engage with it by saying, OK, we can have in the uh, withdrawal agreement two things. We have the normal minus two backstop, and then this kind of all-UK customs bit, which will hopefully... We can sort that out. We can negotiate that all through the transition period, and we'll sort that out before the end of the transition period. And that will supersede the Northern Ireland backstop, make sure that doesn't happen, and that there's no customs border in the Irish Sea, so everything's fine. But Theresa May was still saying, no, 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 there can be no chance, no possibility. I cannot sign up to a document in which there's any possibility that customs border can be um, created in the Irish Sea, and so that's not possible. So the EU's gone back and thought, is there any way at all possibly can we make this happen? It looks like they might be open to it. But the conditions are huge in several. First of all, in terms of fisheries, if you give a country a customs union, then you're giving them tariff-free, quota-free access for all their goods into your economy. The EU didn't want just to give away the prize of UK fishermen being able to sell fish into the European market. They wanted to use that as leverage. Um, the EU would open their market to British fishing products as long as the British open their seas to EU fishermen. So they, if they give away a customs union, they can't use that leverage. They, they, they can't absolutely guarantee the, the right amount of access for their fishermen in British waters. So that problem. Also, in a customs union, you need to be absolutely sure that the other side, the EU needs to be absolutely sure the UK is playing fair that everyone's running by the same rules. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, because it's not, I mean, that really is, it is really, it really is only kind of like part of the of the story, the customs union, isn't it? Because, you know, customs checks, uh, I mean, they're not the only kind of checks that are carried out at borders. And, and I mean, if that, if the whole of the UK is in this kind of a bare bones customs union, but Northern Ireland is in, you know, a customs union, plus I suppose what would amount to a kind of single market for goods, and there's, there, there are going to be other kinds of checks, aren't there? And there, I mean, the EU are I've got to be worried about the, the, this, this kind of level playing field issues that, that you're talking about. Yeah. So if there are custom union signs, then the UK is going to have to do what Turkey does, which is kind of try and align standards as far as they can with EU standards when they have to commit to it. That doesn't mean they can avoid regulatory checks because they would be happy checks because they wouldn't be in the single market. And that is the second part of the thing. So you've got customs is a big issue, and the Prime Minister's made it a big issue as, as part of that sort. But the other thing is that under the withdrawal agreement, and the UK seems to have kind of accepted this, um, Northern Ireland would, in effect, stay in a single market, while Great Britain, the rest of the UK, would be outside after the transition period. And that would mean all sorts of checks. It means 100% checks on agricultural products going from Great Britain into, into Northern Ireland. It means standard checks on industrial goods. The way the EU have sort of said, oh, well, that could be okay. Surely this will be okay if, if British officials can do the, the checks away from the border so it doesn't feel like there's a regulatory border in the RSC. That's their way of sort of dramatising it. It seems that the UK government is open to that. It's yet to be seen whether the Democratic Unionist Party, headed by Arlene Foster, who said that <laughs> it's a red blood line, if the Northern Ireland is treated differently to the rest of the United Kingdom, whether she will think that's okay. Mm. And there's another problem further down the line, isn't there? Just to kind of wrap up, um, 
you know, because we we mustn't forget, obviously, that that you know, for all that we're talking about the backstop, it is only the backstop, and and you know, the the future it's the future UK EU economic partnership that's going to have to avoid all the things that the backstop sort of sets out to prevent. But, you know, so far, it's true to say, isn't it, that there is nothing on the table from the UK side to suggest that UK-EU final, you know, that the comprehensive free trade agreement will actually be able to do that. But all that Britain has come up with in, in terms of, you know, Max FAC and, and, and the UK collecting EU tariffs and all that kind of thing has been you know, kind of just dismissed by the EU27. So, I mean, the backstop could last for a very long time indeed, couldn't it? I mean, the backstop is likely, that, well, the customs union, the temporary customs arrangement, as the UK will call it, is likely to be a permanent customs union. That is the reality of the situation. Because the customs union provides certain benefits, i.e. Uh, frictionless trade at the border in terms of customs trade, at least. And that will only go away, that this backstop solution will only go away once there's something, a solution that's even better, that matches that. There's nothing that matches that. <laughs> it has to be a customs union. It's kind of a um, sophistry, is essentially what it is. We're, we're kind of in a process where the United Kingdom is, is essentially signing up to a customs union, which will last forever and ever, ever and a day, but they don't want to tell anybody, anybody about it. And so they've, sort of, they've dressed it up in all sorts of language. And the uh, same with the withdrawal agreement. There's also layers and layers around this to hide the real intention. Dan Boffy there. Now, Let's move on. Fascinating as it is from uh, this whole backstop question and look at the kind of the process going forwards, Jill. Let's assume for the sake of argument that we do get some kind of Northern Ireland backstop deal. Uh, And so an emergency EU summit at the end of November or early December, possibly. uh, And it's written into the withdrawal agreement. Could actually, could you just explain why that's important. Why is it important that it's written in? What's the difference of it being written into the agreement? So the difference is the withdrawal agreement gets turned into a legally binding treaty. So that's sort of, you know, something that then both sides are committed to. One of the things that's going to be in the withdrawal agreement, we haven't seen quite how it will work, is a dispute resolution mechanism. So if either side thinks the other isn't honouring their commitments in the withdrawal agreement, they can take it to arbitration. So that has real status. The accompanying document, the future relationship, is what's called this sort of future framework. So that may have varying degrees of firmness about it, but you could almost regard it as being the sort of annotated agenda for the future talks on actually what is that long-term future relationship. There may be areas where they're quite close and they can report that they've come to a lot of agreement. They pretty well know what the future partnership will look like, maybe on some of the security angles. On the economic partnership, it may just describe what the principles are that both sides are trying to agree. Some may be a bit more concrete on areas where the UK is asking for things, you know, quite a lot of the sort of checkers stuff. Mm. The EU said, well, you know, you're not asking for single market and services. You know, you want this, you want that. We could probably make some progress on that. So we don't know how detailed that is. We've mm. we've not seen things. We've seen the odd rumour of what's coming out on things like financial services, a bit yes. on data yeah. and stuff. So that's the really different status. But basically, the EU has said, notwithstanding whatever's in the political declaration, if the UK changes its red lines, yeah. changes its people with the red lines or whatever it wants mm. to do, our position can change. Mm. We're quite flexible. We're not bound into any of that. So the UK could decide to come back. Parliament says, you've got to negotiate a permanent customs union. We want you to go in and say, actually, that Norway thing doesn't look so bad after all. 
that, that they would be open to that. That's not happen. ruled out by the political no. declaration no. if the red no. lines change. And no. that's the difference no. in status difference. between the two things. OK, Arnand, now, now Jill mentioned it there, but, you know, it is true that a lot of people are forgetting this other important aspect of the, you know, the, the, the political declaration, declaration on the future partnership, because that is, a, you know, one of the key parts of the withdrawal agreement. There's the Irish border question, financial settlement, citizens' rights, and a statement about the kind of trading relationship, as Jill was saying, that the UK and the EU want after the transition period's over. Now, what's your take on this from the EU perspective? Because there, there's quite a lot of talk about there being some measure of disagreement among the EU member states about how precise, how how, how far that, or, or to what extent that political declaration should be specific and really try to tie things down. I mean, there's been talk, a lot of talk about France in particular, Emmanuel Macron, um, you know, wanting to really keep it specific, essentially to make sure that it, it in the run up to the European elections, which are next May, you know, not to hand the sort of Eurosceptics and, and the nationalists, uh, you know, a, 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 a really useful uh, tool, which would be able to say, well, look, Britain's getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things going on on the east side. In the first place, there is the political pressure from people like Macron, as you say, to get this as specific as possible. The flip side of that is this isn't a legally binding document. The EU can't tie itself because trade deals are negotiated under a tri- different treaty base with different procedures, with different institutions involved in different ways. So the EU can't start negotiating a trade deal now. I mean, this is, it's all quite subtle, but what the EU certainly can't do is tie itself. And so that means that they can be as specific as they like, but actually neither side really is bound, anything, so it doesn't really mean... And if you flip that over and look at it from the UK government side, which I think is, is important... If you think about it this way, the withdrawal agreement is like the medicine we have to swallow. It's about how much money we're giving them, how many rights we're giving them, and how we're going to bend over backwards for Northern Ireland. It's not a good political sell, okay? The sugar to sweeten that medicine is the political declaration. And that's why you're getting that fight over the old UK customs union. Because if the UK can can succeed in getting it shifted from the document that isn't legally binding into the document that is it might be easier to persuade parliamentarians that actually we're not just giving everything away in return for vague promises. We've got a guarantee in this document. Okay, Excellent. Well, let's talk about persuading parliamentarians, shall we? Jill, the nuts and bolts, you know, again, assuming we get this withdrawal agreement. I mean, it's going to get pretty hectic, isn't it, from now on? Could could you just talk us through the timings, sort of what actually has to be got through then between now and next March? I mean, starting, I suppose, with the meaningful vote. I mean, firstly, how how meaningful is it actually going to be? Can there be amendments? Uh, So there, there definitely can be amendments, but there's a very interesting wrangle going on in Parliament with lots of very erudite evidence being given to a thing called the Procedure Committee who have been looking at how should you run the meaningful vote. So basically, yes. So if you use normal parliamentary procedure, uh, it's a debate on a motion. It could be amended, but the running time is 90 minutes. Okay. So the government needs to change that. So it needs something called a business motion, which uh, allows them to prolong the debate for more than 90 minutes, because 90 minutes is probably not very meaningful no. in terms of that. <laughs> uh, so we need longer than 90 minutes. Uh, so the government will have to table a business motion. Dominic Raab has said, the the current Brexit secretary, has said, well, actually, what we need to do is we know it can be amended, but actually the terms of the EU Withdrawal Act say that we need to pass the meaningful vote before we can bring in the EU Withdrawal Agreement Bill. 
So we need to know that this has been passed unamended. You know, so there's no question about whether we've got that right to bring that forward. So what we'd like to do is we'd like Parliament to vote on our motion first, rather than the normal thing, which is you vote on the amendments that the Speaker's selected first, and then when you haven't done those, you then end up with voting on whatever the final motion is as amended. So he's saying we don't want to do that. We want to use a procedure that we usually use on opposition days, it's all very obscure and whatever my uh, my colleagues who understand Parliament have been you know, uh, sort of you know got red towels around their yes, yeah. heads trying to understand this. So uh, so we want to do it in the order that basically you can put down loads and loads of amendments, mm. uh, but we don't talk about those if our motion passes. Others have been saying, well, actually, that's not right. That's actually mm. not. That's not you know, very mean. That's not the way of doing it. And actually, one of the rules about Parliament is you have to hear the views of minorities. So you've had people like Oliver Letwin and Dominic Grieve, I think, proposing an idea that there should be lots of votes on different motions, mm. which would allow Parliament to sort of crystallise what does it want, and then the government can have its mm. its big vote on its own motion. Others saying we'll just you know do it in the normal way. So there will be lots of discussions between the usual channels, between the whips about the business motion. What's the agreement? Do they agree that they'll take a first Labour amendment first mm. and then go to the substantive motion and then the minorities can have their day if that doesn't pass? I mean, so that's a fight. There's also a question of how long. So various people have been saying, well... You know, Maastricht got sort of five days of long debates over the uh, their very long debates over accession. So we need something that matches the constitutional significance of this. You know, almost every MP will probably want to speak. Uh, so how are we going to do that? Uh, there's also the question, what does the government provide? It'll need to publish the treaty. Mm. It's always also said, Philip Hammond repeated this last night at the Treasury Select Committee, that the government will produce its analysis of the deal, you know, that sort of famous thing yes, that we've only yes. seen in leaked form courtesy of BuzzFeed mm. earlier in the year, but we will have the definitive analysis of the deal. Then when Parliament when Parliament has done that, let's say the Prime Minister gets a majority uh, such that the government feels it can proceed to bring in the bill. Government is, I think, very keen to have sort of, you know, second reading the bill before Christmas mm. if it can. It obviously can timetable that in the Commons, can't timetable it in the Lords. But the problem is the EU withdrawal agreement bill yes. is going to be pretty unpalatable uh, if you are... I mean, a, a lot of people do think that that's where the real trouble will come. Is Dominic that, is Reeve that... said that, I think, at an event one of my the, the, colleagues you know, the, went the to. The Parliament will sort of feel OK to, 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 to usher through the motion, uh, uh, you know, or, or when, when, once she comes back with the deal. But then when it comes to the you know, the, the, the bill and the primary legislation, that's where holes will start. So for a variety picked. of reasons. I mean, firstly, because it's going to have a far longer run in the Commons with select committee hearings and various readings. Secondly, because MPs will have had time to mull over what they've already approved and think through the implications. They'll also have more detail in the sense that the withdrawal agreement bill will provide more flesh to the bones in terms of how might we be dealing with uh, dispute recognition, uh, resolution mechanisms and so on. And actually, for a historical parallel, if you go back to 1973, it's quite interesting because the agreement to join the European community sailed through the Commons with a majority of 80-odd. The European Communities Act, I think, had a majority of eight or nine. And it was uh, nightmarish sort of trying to work out. But yeah. if you're relying on, you know, your Labour rebels, yep. or, you know, they might do it on the issue of principle, will they repeatedly go into the lobbies with you? And, there, I mean, there are two problems with the withdrawal agreement bill. One is that a lot of the provisions 
are really pretty hard to stomach if you're, you know, whatever, reinstating the ECJ for a couple of years. Yeah. You know, the things you need to do transition. Repealing or saving, I think, the provisions in the uh, Withdrawal Act that, you know, have repealed the European Communities Act. That's pretty, pretty awful. Signing and an awful over, lot of money. You know, signing <laughs> over the money, yes. you know, giving the government the powers to do that. So that's one step. That's the provisions that are in the bill. But the other thing is, because... Actually, it's such a sort of wide-ranging bill. The scope for amendment is very wide. So that is where you can get people amending it to say the government must seek. You know, the sort of things we saw coming through when the Trade and Customs Bills finally came back to the Commons in July. There's sort of amendments on we should stay part of the EEA. We should join the customs. The government should seek to join the customs union. There should be a people's vote. All of those things are potential amendments on in, that. In your considered view, what is the potential for the whole process to come completely off the rails? at that stage in parliament uh it is perfectly likely Uh, i mean i think anyone who tries to forecast what's going to happen is 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 bluffing because i mean most of the mps i've spoken to are genuinely undecided as to what they're going to do i mean there are lots of conflicting pressures on on people so if you take you know if you're a labor mp who actually wants to give the government the benefit of the doubt to see what the agreement is, to not block Brexit because you come from a Leave constituency. You've also got to face the prospect that this has been set up in such a way as Corbyn will probably, though we don't know for certain, whip his MPs to oppose this motion. If you vote against the leadership and look, therefore, like you're voting to prop up a Conservative government, how vulnerable will you to be to a trigger ballot in your own constituency? So there are, there are loads of different so layers of uncertainty yeah, here. Yeah, They're trying to predict yeah, what 650 yeah. MPs is going to do yes, is a mug's yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. And, it, of course, it also has to go through the European Parliament. Yeah, I don't is think that's it? an issue, to be honest. No, I, think, I think on the European side... Uh, I mean, for, for, for people who are interested in the workings of the European Union, one of the striking things about Brexit has been the degree of coordination between Council, Commission and Parliament has been virtually unprecedented. I mean, actually, the history of the last 10, 12 yeah. years has been one of increasing sourness in those relations uh, through the legislative process. But actually, the three have coordinated very closely all the way through. And I just see no prospect that if the European Council has said this is fine, if the Commission has recommended it, the European Parliament will vote it through. Um, the real difficulty comes if Parliament tries to amend the withdrawal agreement. I mean, that, yeah, because that, the, the European EU, Parliament is yeah, considering Yeah, because that's the thing that's set in stone. I mean, yeah, in a sense, Parliament can express views right, left and centre about what it wants in the future relationship because mm. that's sort of up yeah. for grabs and, as Anand right. said, up for negotiation. That's a bit of mood music. Mm. But actually, if Parliament says, you know, that... No, that amount of money, we don't think you should be paying pensions of UK former commission staff or we don't like the idea that we might be on the hook for these contingent liabilities. You know, that, if we try and unravel that, that becomes very, very problematic. Well, then the motion falls, effectively, doesn't it? Well, the, if it's, they try to do it in the bill, so if yeah. they pick and mix out of different provisions or things like that, I think that could be... Uh, problematic for the government because I don't think the EU isn't will be in the market for uh, having another look at something no. that's taken so long. And of course, bear in mind the sequencing is interesting because after the meaningful vote is passed, if it is passed, then I think the European Parliament is going to start its consideration. It's not going to wait until the withdrawal agreement bill because that's going to take a long time. Yes. So you'll have these two things going on in parallel. How, how long could it take, Jill? I mean, I mean, very very briefly, we're beginning to run out of time. When you know. When do you expect the bill to, uh, assuming it is, again, there's a lot of assumptions going on here, but assuming it, it is passed, I mean, how, how long might it take to get 
that's uh, very, very difficult. If they've got the vote through, I mean, they can rush it through the Commons quite quickly. I mean, you know, they will face resistance. They'll do it presumably like they did the Withdrawal Act on Committee of the Whole House. But they can timetable it in the Commons. Their problem is if the Lords decide to do it. But I think ultimately the Lords will, you know, if the Commons has voted for both the motion, the Lords will obviously have discussed that as well, and basically approve the withdrawal agreement, then I think the Lords ultimately would not want to be taking the risk that they are the people who are triggering that we hit the 29th of March 2019 yes. without a deadline. So I think Lords would come in to play. But, I mean, there's a, another big consideration for the government, which is when does it call off the no-deal preparations? We're about to hit the phase yeah. where no-deal preparations have to start spending really seriously money. I mean, John, John Thompson keeps on saying we've actually passed various drop-dead dates, but uh, we didn't drop dead. But you, know, you are you still asking government to spend serious money on things it could spend on mm. better causes than preparing for something you don't think happens? Do you call it off when you get the meaningful vote through? Yeah. Or do you actually wait until you see you've got the withdrawal agreement? A lot because you wouldn't expect be, that through yeah. until end yeah. of February, I would have thought. An awful lot still to be got through. I just, just before we finish, I want very briefly, very quick... Um, word from both of you, if you wouldn't mind. The big news story of last week, obviously, Angela Merkel's decision to step down. Any difference to Brexit at all, Anand? No, I don't think so. I mean, certainly not at this phase of the process. We don't know what's going to happen in Germany over the course of the next year, 18 months. It might impact on the trade negotiations, but I suspect the new European Parliament will impact on them more. Mm-hmm. Jill? No, the thing that the UK has... yeah consistently fails to realise is where we have for two and a bit years spoken non-stop about Brexit it will be what number four five or whatever on whoever the incoming chancellor's uh, you know to-do list is so we shouldn't expect that this is going to be top of their mind to have a sort of really changed arrangement. Okay well that is it I'm afraid for this time we'll be back early next month um, just after that emergency November summit if it happens. Uh, in the meantime, you can keep up to date with Brexit developments on our sister podcast, Politics Weekly. My thanks to Jill, Arnand and Dan in Brussels for joining me today. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Memes and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.